And so we come to this letter, as we come to it today, we're really going to study what is known as the preface, preface, as he sets up more of the substance of the letter. He begins with reminding his readers and hearers of what they already know and what they believe. And this is a consistent thing that is done among New Testament writers and something that I'd like us to address before we start to unpack this letter. One thing I notice as I speak to people in and around other Christian traditions is that while we are bonded simply by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins and the validity of this message being true through the confirmation and belief in the resurrection of Jesus, often we want more. We want to crack the code that others haven't. Now, here's the thing. Christianity, the teaching of Christianity, is pretty deep. But it's also simple. And many don't want to pursue the depth of the truth of the gospel. Rather, they'd prefer to attempt to pursue things that make them feel good or exalt themselves or maybe make them seem more important than the message. But church, we got a simple message. And all of the Bible read through this simple message, this lens, continues to point out the same exact need that mankind has always had, which is an intervention from God rather than religious effort to save one's soul. So let me say it simply. We do not graduate from the gospel. We do not graduate from the gospel. If you want to grow in your understanding of the spiritual realm, I, spiritual fingers, if you want to, if you want to uh, grow in the spiritual realm and understand it, Get your masters in the gospel. Go obsess over the gospel. Look at the world through the lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus lived the perfect life. We couldn't die the death we should have died and then physically rose from the dead. Why? Because culture, society, and even religion are all attempting to get you to see the world through your own effort. So major in the majors, church. Not attempting to spend all of one's time trying to outsmart others apart from what God actually says in his word. <sighs> all right. I totally think that often we will miss the point of the gospel completely. Some will memorize and obsess about the scriptures like a Pharisee. But that doesn't mean we disregard the scriptures or attempt to find God in nature over knowing him through his will revealed in the word and in the text. I say this a lot. I'm going to keep saying it. You're going to continue to hear this. How you interpret scripture matters a lot, like a lot, a lot. But even your interpretation can become an idol. What we ought to do is look at God's word. We ought to look at God's word and always be open to the fact that perhaps we too, pastor, elders, teachers, uh, construction worker, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a believer in Jesus, we all need to grow in our understanding of what God intended to mean when he spoke through the prophets and the apostles. I begin with that rant. Because as we come to this letter, John is going to retell what is already said. And you'll see as we study how redundant he is. And I think redundancy in the scriptures is more important than we often realize. A point I made this past weekend while at a camp, 
uh, that I was at with the Neathlings was that we really want to attempt to figure out, many Christians want to figure out when Jesus is coming back more than we want to love our neighbors. And yet the former, the trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back, is barely talked about in the scriptures. In fact, it says that the son doesn't even know when he's coming back in 2,000 years ago. But the latter, loving your brother, loving your neighbor, is throughout almost every letter of the New Testament. Emphasis and redundancy matter. Because, as we say a lot, scripture interprets scripture. An apostle, one who wrote part, parts of the New Testament, explain what other apostles actually mean. Because while they are two different authors, they are both inspired and indwelled by the same Holy Spirit. So we're going to begin 1 John in 2 Peter, because that's what we do here. 2 Peter, chapter 3. Peter's writing to the church, and he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way, he's redundant, in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some hard things to understand. I love that Peter was throwing shade on, on Paul. Not really, but kinda. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter brings validity to Paul's writings within the very scriptures that we believe are beneficial for our spiritual growth, for our Christ-likeness. And we find this out from where God's will is revealed in the word. But then Peter gives an application to the brothers, meaning other believers. That's you and me if we've confessed Jesus Christ. And what we ought to do, because for over 2,000 years, people have been attempting to distort the scriptures. Here's what Peter says. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard. Can you go like this? Do it. Oh, like six of you did it. Okay, that's cool. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Can I get an amen? amen. Be on guard, dear believers. Allow scripture to be the thing that you judge anything someone else says against. Rather than just what sounds good or makes you feel better. Be on guard so that you can grow in grace. Wait, but I thought grace was just allowing people to be stupid. No. Grace is understanding that God gave us what we did not deserve. And we receive it. And we get to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Son through obeying God at his word. With that in mind, I want us to read this glorious beginning of this glorious letter written to followers of Jesus by the disciple whom Jesus loves. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John begins the letter very consistently and kind of redundantly, like his own letter, his own gospel, John chapter 1, but also has how the entire Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, in the beginning. But in 1 John, he doesn't say in the beginning, he says, that which is from the beginning. John is setting the stage as an apostle, as a sent one, with the other apostles sent by God the Son, Jesus, as witnesses to tell others of what they knew about Jesus about his crucifixion, about his resurrection. He begins with the reality that he and a few others were the ones that personally saw Jesus alive after he died. Now, as we studied at length, as we walked through the book of John, do you guys remember that? That was forever. John's gospel. We unpacked probably the most prevalent false teaching in the day, and there's a lot of false teaching today, and I, was, I have lists. I'm not going to read them because you'll pay too much attention to the list of false teaching. Just know there's false teaching, okay? But I have this quote from Henry Mansell in a book called The Gnostic Heresies of the First and Second Centuries. Gnosticism was the specific thing that John, I think in particular, was teaching against because people were making up some phony ideas about Jesus and God and what he says. And here's his quote. Gnosticism was perhaps the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church during the first three centuries. Influenced by such philosophers as Plato, Gnosticism is based on two false premises. First, it espouses a dualism regarding spirit and matter. Gnostics assert that matter is inherently evil. Flesh is evil and spirit is good. And as a result of this presupposition, Gnostics believe anything done in the body, even the grossest sin, uh, uh, call out your grossest sin, go ahead, I'm, just, I'm kidding. Even the grossest sin has no meaning because real life exists in the spirit realm only. Second, Gnostics claim to possess an elevated knowledge, a higher truth, that's in quotes, known only to a certain few. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. Gnostics claim to possess a higher knowledge, not from the Bible, but acquired on some mystical higher plane of existence. Gnostics see themselves as privileged class elevated above everybody else by their higher, deeper knowledge of God. Gnosticism, this is the end of the quote, is based on a mystical, intuitive, subjective, inward, emotional approach to truth which is not new at all. It's very old, actually. Going back in some form to the Garden of Eden, where Satan, back in, uh, where Satan questioned God and the words he spoke and convinced Adam and Eve to reject God and accept a lie. Sadly, as I read about what Gnosticism is, it sounds all too familiar. And to be honest, it's probably why the Bible is so redundant and why we are so consistent about preaching a specific event that took place and changed everything. So let me spoil it for you if this is your first or second time. We talk a lot about the resurrection of Jesus at Church of the Valley. Like a lot. Like every week. Like in most, if not all of our teaching, because for me personally... And I know for some of you others, the resurrection is what cemented your belief. It wasn't just hopeful that Jesus was who he said he was. 
Jesus, if he could physically rise from the dead, then God can be real. God can write the scriptures. Those scriptures can tell us about him and about us and that salvation can be found in a resurrected king who did what we were unable to do in our own strength. John doesn't just attest to what he saw. He attests. John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, attests. He testifies to what he felt. But what he felt wasn't just some hopeful, fleeting emotion. No, what he felt was what he physically touched. John 20, 19 through 20, jumping back into the Gospel of John. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus, like Mr. Deeds, came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Has anyone ever seen Mr. Deeds? It's Adam Sandler movie. Okay, I'll, I'll send it to you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Why is this a big deal? Well, because he had resurrected at this point. So did John touch him? Probably. But he doesn't refer to it specifically, and yet Luke, another gospel, which is redundant, says it this way in Luke 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. I would have been like, boo, that's what I would have done. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So the disciples felt as if Jesus was alive, literally. But John does point out a specific person who did not believe until he felt Jesus. Continuing in John 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, nah. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, verse 26, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. John adds this, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, boo. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Don't miss this. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, this is for us, church, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I was driving uh, Lorelai to, to church this morning, and as we were driving, she doesn't normally go with me, I, I come earlier, and she's like, why is it so dead? I'm like, because we're weird, we go to church. There aren't a lot of people out at 7.30 this morning. Literally, I saw one car, it was like I was in, you know, the boondocks. <sighs> it's weird that we come here and worship but being weird for Jesus seems worth it. Amen? Even at 5.50 a gallon for diesel. Thomas, who did not believe unless he saw him personally, did believe. He felt him. He touched him. He was changed by him. And Jesus, speaking to all of those who would come after the apostles, said this, 
blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That's us. I'm convinced, church, like literally convinced that Jesus rose from the dead based on the responses of the disciples in particular. They didn't just continue to work. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, well, uh, uh, what are you doing this weekend? No. They did not forget about this monumental moment. They had their lives completely altered because a dead man had risen. And that risen one was the savior of mankind and the disciples knew it. And you and I, we get to believe in the savior, this Lord, the resurrected king. And while I have never personally seen him, not in grilled cheese, not in a vision, I believe in him and my life has been altered because of that. John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loves, begins with the preface regarding the Word. The Word, capital W. This is the word that's known as logos. The same word for word that is used at the beginning of John's gospel letter, John, regarding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So here's 1 John 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Redundant, I know, but we're going to keep reading it. This we proclaim concerning the capital W word of life. Now let's look at John 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the capital W word, and the capital W word was with God, and the capital W word was God. And then he goes through some other things, and he explains some things about John the Baptist. He explains some things about light and life, and then he explains how one can receive Jesus and then he says, verse 14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John's own explanation of Jesus's life and ministry known as the gospel of John speaks about the logos, L-O-G-O-S, the word, and then says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, the word, the truth, the logos, the son, and all of John's gospel had a purpose, and he states it later on in John chapter 20, in verse 30, John the disciple whom Jesus loves, writes in the gospel, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may, what's that word? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the word of life is the one that you can believe in. Not just that he existed, not just that he lived, not just his teachings, not just his death on the cross, not just his resurrection, but all of it together framing our worldview which becomes one under the word of God rather than allowing culture to dictate what we think and believe. To believe in the word of life, to believe in Jesus, to submit yourself to him and to submit yourself is to submit yourself to his lordship and his leadership. It is to submit to his word, who is Jesus, and to think biblically about others and about yourself and about God. Because, spoiler, Jesus is as alive today as he was on the third day, still reigning and ruling. And in him, we can have life, eternal life in his name. All right, that was verse one. 
Now we're to verse 2. This is going to take a while to get through this book. I'm just saying. Verse 2. The life appeared. John says, we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. I love John's admission here. The life appeared. The life was not created. The life didn't accidentally come onto the scene. The life appeared. The incarnate Son of God, God with skin, as we often say, came upon his creation. One of the most well-known hymns in the first century, Paul quotes in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He, Jesus, appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. This hymn honestly breaks down what we're pumped about. Now look at how Paul speaks about God incarnate, God with skin. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he says, the Son, the Word, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities or governors or mayors or presidents, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You know, the writer of Hebrews says a similar thing at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, and there's this redundancy. It's almost like all the gospel writers and all the New Testament writers are making it all about Jesus. And let me let you in on another secret. We're about Jesus up in here, up in here. You know why? Because God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the Son, who is the truth, who is the life. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, you know what that means in Greek? No one comes to the Father except through me if you really know me you will know my father as well from now on you do know him and you have seen him not only is jesus the way to the father but he is our key to relationship with god father son holy spirit and within their perfect relationship god invites others who by grace in jesus's finished work on the cross are then superseded into the family Ephesians chapter 2, 6 through 7, Paul writes, And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages he might show off. He might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So I've said this before, I'm going to say it again because I feel like we all need to be reminded of this. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you have submitted yourself to Jesus and you find your identity in Jesus, you are superseded by Jesus and his finished work. So when you fail, 
which if you're like me, it's constantly, we have a mediator who not only sticks up for us, oh, he's with me, no, Jesus' work is so complete in Christ, when God the Father looks at us, he chooses to see his son in our place. And that should not lead us to sin more just because our sin is excused in Christ. That ought to lead us towards worship because of God's forgiveness practically in Jesus. Verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, John says, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. John states literally the purpose for this entire letter that we're going to read and study over the next few months here in this one verse. We proclaim the resurrected Jesus that we have seen and touched so that you can have fellowship with us. Fellowship, let's be clear. Fellowship, I, oh man, I like, can I pause? I really want you guys to hear this, okay? Unpause. All right, here we go. Fellowship isn't friendship. All right? Can you say it back to me? Fellowship isn't friendship. Thank you. You can be friends with anyone, and usually it's based on some common interest. There's a lot of football jerseys up in here today. Yet fellowship takes that common interest, makes it spiritual, and dials it up to 11. As John stated, what is written through this entire letter is so that you may believe in the word of life and find fellowship with both him, he's representing other believers, and God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. John's hope with this letter is not just that people would subscribe to a set of beliefs, but that those beliefs would manifest themselves in fellowship a connection around the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes people not acquaintances, not better friends, not more than co- not colleagues. Fellowship makes us family. Fellowship is not friendship. Fellowship is God's work to bond us together in his finished work. And that makes us close. That makes us share blood. That makes us share heritage, not in who we were physically born to, but in who we were spiritually born into. Each believer in Jesus Christ has been born again. Don't let the 70s hijack that term. It's a real thing. We were born again, according to John 3. And then we are made into a new creation with our identity being found and supported by Christ and his finished work on the cross, and from the resurrection from the dead. So how is fellowship achieved? Well, thanks for asking. Through the proclamation and receiving of the message of the gospel. That is why John and the other apostles and every believer since has had a responsibility to share this message and to care, with, care for other people because of this message. Specific people in the congregation I have experienced spiritual re- connection with, which makes it more than friendship. It turns it into fellowship. I've prayed with Moises and Janet many times. That's fellowship. I've done life with Malik, 
a lot. And while not every time we get together, we open the Bible and we're studying it, we're no, sometimes we're just joking and messing around, but we both believe in the gospel together and there is fellowship. My, uh, my middle daughter, which one's that? Evie, thank you. Evie spent the night at the Zilkas this weekend and Evie and I have this running uh, joke that any time with the Zilkas is a good time. It's true, like can't ever have too much Zilkas in your life. It's very true, but not just because they're fun to hang out with and, and Ruth is the hostess with the mostest. It's because we're bonded by what Christ has accomplished. We have fellowship. The gospel of grace, the message of salvation, the person and work of Jesus, nothing else provides us access to fellowship with one another and with God. It is the gospel personified in Jesus Christ and the submission to his work being enough to make us right with God. Rather than our own effort or our own merit being what we attempt to justify ourselves by. So we're finally at verse 4. You're welcome. Here's what John says. We write this to make our joy complete. Redundantly, in these four verses, John points out what he has seen, what he has touched, what he has proclaimed, what is being written, so that we may have fellowship with God and with his church. This redundancy, I think for some, tends to become the thing where our eyes glaze over and we go yada, 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 I know, I know, I know. And yet the entire New Testament points out our need for a Savior. The entire New Testament points out who our Savior is. The entire New Testament points out how we can pursue that Savior even after we first submit to Him and how we can be image bearers for the glory of that Savior and Jesus is His name. And yet so many think that the redundancy of the message, especially the message of the gospel, is played out or over-talked about. And what that tells me, I'm 20 plus years into being a believer in Jesus Christ. I've been a believer longer than I haven't been a believer in my 42 years of life. It's that in our understanding, if we think the gospel's played out, if we think we graduate from the gospel, our gospel is shallow. The gospel of grace is where it's at, y'all. And Jesus is the gospel personified. Jesus is God with skin. And like we say a lot, it's all about Jesus. And so John writes this letter that we're going to study through through the end of the year so that our, both his and any and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ ever since could have their joy be made complete. That our joy would come from the truth of the gospel, that we're not saved by what we do, but we're saved by whose we are and that our joy would be set on something that is immovable and is a rock-solid foundation. And everything else, everything else that we find our hope in, I'm, I'm not going to itemize it, but you know those things that you find your hope in. You know those things you're looking forward to. You know those things that if you're really honest with yourself, you've made more important than Jesus Christ. It's those things you find your identity in. It's those things that you try to find your joy in until it fails you. They're sinking sand. That's what that is. And this 
is why we rejoice when a person who we care about or know come to faith. This is why we hope that our friends and our family and our neighbors and our colleagues and our spouses and our siblings and our parents and our cousins and our children come to know Jesus. And I guess your aunts and uncles too. Not so that they will become part of the club. Not so they'll just attend a church. But because their and our joy will be made complete. Because that joy is in Jesus. That joy is offered in community. And that joy is progressively becoming more and more all-encompassing as we grow in the knowledge of the Son and become more like Him over time. This letter, through the, through the letter of 1 John, this uh, series, through the letter of 1 John, is to Christians presumably, presumably in Ephesus. And I want us to come to this letter as we study, knowing how incredibly important and foundational and vital it is to understand that our fellowship is with God and with others. And the work that is required to make any of you righteous to make any of you right with God, to save any of you, to make any of you a Christian. The work that is required, it has been done. Not by you, not by me, not by the church. Nope, by Jesus Christ. And he gets all the glory, he gets all the praise, he gets all the honor. So worship team, would you come on up? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you, I don't normally put pictures in my slides. Mike and I, you know, Mike's a visual thinker, I'm an audio thinker. But, you know, slides work. So if you would put that next slide up, that's a tombstone. What do you want on your tombstone? Pizza? Never mind. Yep, yep, it's there. Well done, uh, tombstone pizza. Um, this is John Berridge's tombstone. He lived from, from <laughs> I almost said first March. From March, March 1st, 1716 to January 22nd, 1793. He was an angelical, angelican, evangelical revivalist and hymnist. He wrote hymns. He was a vicar, which in our terminology is more like a pastor. But that isn't what's impressive to me about him. John Wesley, an even more well-known theologian and revivalist, commented about Berridge, and he called him this. He said, he is one of the most simple as well as the most sensible of all whom it pleased God to employ in reviving primitive Christianity. So you could probably make out some of the words if you're close-ish. Daniel's struggling. That's fun. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what it says on his tombstone. Here lay the earthly remains of John Berridge, late vicar of Everton and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ, who loved his master and his work, and after running on his errands many years, was called up to wait on him above. Then there's a question in the tombstone. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without new birth, he says. Then he testifies on his tombstone, I was born in sin, February 1716. I remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730. I lived proudly on faith, good job, and works for salvation until 1754. I was then admitted to Everton Vicarage as a vicar, as a pastor in 1755. 
Look what happens after. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge. 1756. Fell asleep in Christ. January 22nd, 1793. There's a well-known speaker said at a conf- uh, said once at a conference that I was at that you have your birth date, you have your date of death on your tombstone. What are you going to do with the dash? And I look at John Berenger's dash, if you will, and think, what happened in 1756 was most important. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge. He didn't do it on his deathbed. He had 30 more years, 40 more years. But he fled to Jesus alone after he became a pastor. That was after he had accepted Jesus, if you will. So church, if you've been following Christ all of your life, which is impossible, but if you have or you've said yes to him and committed to him lately, my ask of you is, have you fled to Jesus? Have you found your joy in Jesus? Have you believed the word of life? Have you made John's joy complete? So here's what we're going to do. Uh, I haven't told them this, and so I apologize. Not really, I don't really apologize. Dan, I'm going to invite you to come stand over here. Franco's, I'm going to invite you to come stand over here. Fredericks, I'm going to ask you to go over there, just so you're not right where you're standing or sitting. If you guys would go over there. Zilkas, if you guys would go sit in the back over kind of by where the, um, the, uh, the booth is. Oh, and Kyle built that, so that's fantastic. Um, and I'm going to invite you guys while these two songs are sang, that if you come to this sermon, you come to this passage, you come to this letter being convicted or knowing that you're going through something where you need community to pray over you, I'd invite you to do that. James and Brittany are here to pray for you. Dan is here to pray for you, I hope, because I didn't prep him. Frank, the Fredericks are here to pray for you. The Zilkas are here to pray for you. But use this time as we sing these two songs to spend time thinking about the reality that we can flee to Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll play. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the truth of your gospel. I thank you that our joy can be made complete because of Jesus' finished work, and belief in that, and connection and love with one another can happen. So God, as we sing these songs with these rich lyrics. May we think about the goodness of our God. May we think about Jesus who John Barrage fled to after many years in the faith, if you will. Would we not be afraid to go and ask someone that cares for people in this community to pray over them? And will we use this time as a sacred time to know that you are God and we don't get to do this every day and Man, we don't always attend. We're not always a part of this. But when we are, it is the sacred opportunity to enjoy your family. So God, would you be praised as we worship you in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name.